0: Welcome to the Law of Stardust podcast. I'm Mike Schneider.
1: And I'm Joe Wallen. Thank you for being with us. Today, we're lucky to have in the studio Mr. Cliff Webster. Cliff is the chair of the uh, carnegie least spellman Government Affairs practice. Cliff, welcome to the show. Thank you very
2: much. Glad to be here.
1: Yeah. So, Cliff, so you've been working in Olympia for how many years?
2: I think it's 34 years. I just, wow. with the conclusion last week of the 2018 legislative session, that's 35 sessions I've been down in Olympia.
1: Well that's I mean that's almost well I suppose that's not a record cuz there's got to be somebody who holds it longer.
2: There are a few younger people that started right out of college. I didn't start until after law school in a a stint working in Washington DC for a member of Congress.
1: Okay, okay. So like how long were you in DC then? 2 years. And I, yeah. did, when did you officially catch the bug, the political
2: bug? Oh, I got that when I was in high school. Okay. And I think uh, this is this is really ancient history, but when I was about 16 years old living in Wenatchee, Washington, then Governor Dan Evans came through town uh, yeah. in his first reelection campaign and I met him at the local Republican headquarters and I had the bug. You
1: had the bug. Well, that's so funny. I mean, that's um I mean, that's bust- I mean, think back on what, what's transpired in Olympia over 35 years. There's probably been an amazing number of really interesting things to look back on.
2: Yeah, there is. Um, you know, the, the, there's a, an ever-increasing number of bills every session. The legislators are more active. They're they're more proactive uh, maybe than being reactive. Um, yeah, and a lot, of, a lot of new areas of law have been put into place.
1: Yeah. So, my, Mike, one of the things that uh, Cliff and I were talking about, over breakfast this morning was this day, there were a couple bills in the legislature this year that didn't make it through, but they would have had, you know, some impact on the technology industry. Um, why don't we just talk about those? As a couple examples, I
2: mean, one was this bill on data data brokers. Data brokers. Now give the give your audience the number of the bill uh, in case I want to look it up and see what it says. <laughs> yes, yeah, so what was the House the Bill nineteen oh four, offered by prime sponsored by Representative Norma Smith from up in the um, uh, Skagit Valley area. Um, the It's a bill that's been around two years, if not maybe a little longer than that, and specifically uh, it it proposes to uh, increase the tax rate as it was originally introduced – to 33%, the business and occupation tax on data brokers. Wow, well that's,
1: just put that in perspective. Right now, the highest B&O tax rate is
2: what? 1.5%. Right. Uh, heard, unless, unless you're handling nuclear materials, and then I think it's uh, 33%. Oh, really? So the the bill, as I recall, wants to um, raise the rate on the B&O tax to what handlers of nuclear materials do.
1: Huh. Well, that's a pretty, I mean, because the B&O tax, for those in the audience who don't know, I mean, it's just a gross receipts tax, and it's... Generally speaking, no credits, no deductions, or anything. Generally
2: speaking, I think that's almost a hundred percent true. It's a gross receipts tax on the gross receipts of a business.
1: Right, and, and they,
2: if you have pass through income coming through your business, it doesn't matter. You pay on the pass through income as well. Right.
1: So Washington State, for those people in the audience who, who don't know this, Washington State, uh, yeah, it doesn't have uh, it doesn't it doesn't have a pass through regime for business entities. So, like, if you're for federal purposes, if you're an LLC, taxed as a partnership. You know, for federal purposes, they're passed through, but for, for Washington state law purposes, the partnership's going to pay, you know, taxes. Each separate entity pays taxes. So, in any anyway, event, that's just a high rate, 33%. It,
2: it pyramids, yeah. And, and it's clearly a bill uh, offered by Representative Smith and co-sponsored uh, by Representative Jeff Morris that is intended to discourage data brokers as that term is defined rather loosely in yeah. the legislation.
1: Well, it was this inspired by? And I, I, I only uh, intermittently like get involved in Olympia I- events. I mean, and I've always enjoyed. Getting involved in things like trying to pass bills of one kind or another, but right. was this inspired in part by sort of the Facebook, you know?
2: Yeah, Facebook would have come afterward, but it was—it's definitely been inspired by increasingly as consumers engage in particularly online transactions, but other kinds of commercial transactions. I think they—they they become surprised at how much information is collected about them, how much is readily available in the marketplace, um, and and the, the the breach situation, security breach and so forth and so I, I think all of that and and some of the uh, desire to just keep personal information personal and right. and have some control over who re- who gets it uh, and how they use it and I think all of that is culminated in this kind of legislation where there was a second bill uh, that I think I've mentioned to you, which is House Bill 2278, offered by or prime sponsored by Representative Jeff Morris of Anacortes, um, who chairs the House uh, Technology and Economic Development Committee. And that bill would have uh, provided that personally identifiable information held by government entities, such as the Department of Licensing and so forth, could not be released to Anyone commercial without the, it, it, not just commercial, it, it's it's clearly focused. It, it, I think the prime sponsor would say on commercial use of personally identifiable information. But as originally introduced in this 2018 legislative session, it said no information, uh, financial or that contained personally identifiable information, could be released by a state and state agency.
1: Well, that'd be. I mean, as a practical matter, like for example you get on the King County website I find out where your home is and how much you paid in taxes Correct. and things like this and there are businesses that that just troll through public sources of information like this to build profiles of people to sell and so it's kind of hard to understand how you could practically speaking like a put you know make that law
2: effective well and we want information like that to be it, it to be public in my view uh, from a, a bigger standpoint don't you want to know that your neighbor's house is being uh, appraised by the county assessor, similar to your house, and they're not getting treated more favorably than you are, and they're paying the same taxes as you are, and so forth. So it seems to me there's there's certainly a public aspect to why we want some of this information to be um, why we want it to be commercially available, right, or yeah. available to the public and and commercially available. Sure,
1: interesting. So, anyway, the, the session's over now. The session ended on March eighth. Correct. And the governor, it's some kind of weird state rule. The governor has like 20 days to sign bills that passed, and if he doesn't sign them, they just go away?
2: No, they become just, law without his signature. Oh, really? Once okay. the legislature adjourns, if the governor doesn't sign a measure, it becomes law without his signature. But he can
1: veto anything he wants, right? He can
2: veto he can and he can veto sections of bills. He oh, right, can't he can't sections. Yeah, he can't veto subsections of bills.
1: So we can't zero out single individual words.
2: No. Uh, <laughs> I I, um, I think that came about, um, if I remember correctly, again, going back to Governor Dan Evans, yeah. the legislature passed the... Um, the comprehensive rewrite of the Landlord-Tenant Act in this state back during in Governor Evans' term somewhere in the 1970s, as I recall. And he used the then um, veto power of the governor, he thought, to remove words like not from a sentence. <laughs> and so he took what was is, at least by... Urban uh, mythology uh, was a fairly landlord-friendly bill and turned it into a tenant-friendly bill. That's, <laughs> s- the state supreme court said you can't do that. That yeah. uh, the 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 constitution provides you must
0: veto an entire section. So. Interesting. So that's
1: a state that's a state constitutional provision. I didn't realize. Correct. Interesting. Yeah. Well, also- so. On- Oh, go
0: ahead, Mike. I was going to say on this on this privacy stuff. I know, like, I'd, I'd love to hear more about how the state process works. But in general, the, the U.S. The privacy laws seem to trail really far behind other parts of the world. And we've got this this GDPR um, uh, regulations that that are happening in Europe that are starting to become effective, and they're really having an impact on uh, like software companies and SaaS companies here in Washington and and all over the United States. Like, so they sort of it's kind of a Uh, I don't know, lowest common denominator in terms of protection. Like everybody sort of has to protect the data as as stringently as required by the the most stringent jurisdiction that has some authority. And in this case, it's looking like if, if you have data about Europeans in your database, um, you're going to have to start to comply with GDPR level uh, security measures. And so it's, it'll be interesting to see if that makes it easier for uh, you know U.S. regulatory bodies and state regulatory bodies to, to pass similar measures here, since companies will already have been kind of accustomed to what it requires.
2: Well, and I think it's fair to say, based on the discussions uh, about the two pieces of legislation I mentioned, and particularly um, House Bill nineteen oh four, that there legislators of both political parties of all political persuasions are very concerned about access to personally identifiable information for reasons of. Um, fraud and abuse, but just also the notion that that information is personal to you and, and you ought to control it in the same way you control other aspects of your life. I, I agree with you, Mike, that I think the United States, uh, uh, well, I, I, you know more about Europe than I do, but historically, uh, state and local governments in this country have had it st- a strong view about disclosure of information in public records, which would include information that's personally identifiable. Um, you know, we've had the state um, public records act uh, in place since the early 1970s, and and it's it's strongly it biased toward releasing information that's held by government agencies.
1: Right. So that would be it's strange because I mean everyone agrees that we should have privacy and be able to protect our private information, but I mean. That could, I mean, a bill like that could really seriously harm, like what I mean, just the level of disclosure you can get from government in general about what it's doing. Correct. And I mean, the process of redacting information like that might just really burden agencies with a lot of costs. And I
2: think we we don't even understand. Well, it's easy not to comprehend uh, as legislators all the places in which you, the information is used for very important purposes, which would be, you know. Um, at uh, credit scoring for purposes of writing, underwriting risk for insurers, uh, people who buy insurance for their automobiles, um, for in, um, encouraging commercial transactions uh, and easy access to credit. Where, so you can quickly um, be able to buy a washing machine or a dryer at the local Sears store on a Saturday afternoon and put it on a newly issued Sears credit card and so forth. So yeah. there's lots of places it's used
1: so if we want to change so Mike and I have this we want to change the law in Washington state um, Mike's got some great ideas for a bill what, what do we do so it's the legislative session just ended right so now is the time to start for next session right Correct approximately about right now
2: yeah now you know your chances of getting a piece of legislation passed are usually the general rule of thumb is it usually takes two or three legislative sessions if yeah. bill is going to pass. Um, the, uh, I was involved this year in a bill that's been around for 10 years and it took 10 years for it to pass. We didn't want it to, my client initially (laughs) didn't want it to pass, but, um, yeah, the earlier you start before the legislative session, the better because you have easier access to legislators to meet with them over a cup of coffee in their districts and talk about the issue. Um, the, the key, it seems to me is it would ask yourself, is there a legislator who, um, by reason of the district they represent, he or she represents, uh, it would be inclined to support the legislation? Or by reason of occupation or training, is, would they be inclined to support the legislation? Or do they uh, serve on the committee that has jurisdiction over the subject matter? And that would be the, the pool of the universe of legislators you'd wanna, you would want to start list, visiting with and talking right.
1: to. Has there been, I mean, from time to time, we've had bills in Olympia that would, made, that would make non-competes illegal uh, but i think i didn't see anything about that in, in this last no
2: session. there was there's a non-compete bill in this most recent legislative okay. session i i apologize i can't remember there were two of them if i recall okay. correctly uh one of them came very close to passing if it in fact did not pass huh. um and i sorry i just if i'd known you were going to ask me that yeah, i would, yeah, have, great, I would have looked it up on the <laughs> legislative website <laughs>
1: <Apologies>. <laughs> well that's interesting because like that that's an issue that the tech industry. I think um, some, some yes. people in the tech industry really think that we should go. We should go the way of California, make these things basically illegal, except in the context of a business sale, and that frees up labor and you know workers to move, and that makes makes the whole system more efficient, faster to get products out, and blah, blah,
2: blah. There there were sort of two approaches to the non-compete bills that have been around the legislature the last uh, two or three or four years. Uh, One is to protect more low-wage workers uh, where non-competes are used in some arenas where legislators scratch their heads and yeah, say, why like, do we need those? Yeah, like,
1: for apparently franchisors Correct. will agree. Like, for example, I'm the Kentucky Fried Chicken guy, person. I own a KFC. I'm a franchisee. And my franchise agreement will say, I'm not going to hire anyone from Taco Bell or something like that. I mean, have you heard
2: of this anyway? I haven't heard of that. I, I do know that um, in some, you know, what, what would be lower wage jobs, in, maybe in the quick serve industry or otherwise, okay. it's, they, they're put in non-competes. They're, but the second part of that yeah. in the most recent legislative session has been focused around higher-wage workers. Uh, and one of the bills at one point, I think, had a threshold of uh, those making over somewhere around 100000 I think mm-hmm. it, that threshold was eventually raised to about 300000 There was a lot of opposition to that bill from the high-tech industry here in Washington State. The big,
1: companies, the big companies? Yeah,
2: the ones that, the, the, the marquee companies that right. you can imagine yes, would have an interest. it's answer.
1: funny. It Mike, you know, maybe you'll have some thoughts on this, but, I mean, on the one hand, people complain, I think, there is a... And this isn't my complaint uh, at all. But some people complain, hey, you know, these tech companies, they're just, they hire all these, uh, they they go offshore to hire people and they should hire American people. I think that's one complaint, right? Um, and, um, and at the same time, like we have these laws which prohibit companies from, you know, actually hiring people who are here because <laughs> you know, like, they'll be locked to by non-competes. So I don't know. It's a little, there's an inconsistent, there's some really inconsistent philosophies and theories around this area. Uh, I know that Oregon yeah, a did lo- a law. Oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: I was going to say a, lo- a lot of folks think non-competes are, aren't necessary because the, you could achieve the same thing with a, with a confidentiality provision. I mean, it's obviously there's different opinions on the topic, but like uh, the folks that are against non-competes would say, you don't really need a non-compete. You you lock somebody up with confidentiality. They can't if they go to another employer there. If they use the confidential information they got while they were at your at your business, that's that's a violation of the confidentiality obligations, and it, it could be like a trade secret action or a or a breach of the breach of that agreement. And that maybe the 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 non-competes may be a little more like o- overreaching than necessary to achieve the the result you want. Um. I think
2: it is by industry sector and so forth. I I happen to work for the state's engineers and architects are one of the clients I represent, and um, the the trade associations, the professional societies showed very little interest in the non compete issue because they're generally not widely used. uh, I'm told in that in that uh, specific in the design professions or among design firms right. uh, for a number of reasons, but including the fact that they're licensed professionals. But um, so, yeah, I think it's the high-tech industry definitely cares about it. Uh, and and like so many things, I think sometimes businesses have lawyers write these provisions into their contract without necessarily thinking, do we really need it? Right. Yeah. yeah.
1: Yeah, certainly there's, I mean, if, if you're a lawyer, you know, representing a company, uh, I mean, and you, and, you, and you draft a non-competition agreement into the standard offer employment documents of a company, I mean, you're protecting your client, right? But um, maybe, you know, economically on a macro level, that's just not as good for the overall economy. I mean, it might be great for individual yeah. clients. or.
0: I usually, I usually advise folks that when they're doing non-compete stuff to... Uh, to be selective, like not to include the non-compete in their standard form. Because like you said, like folks like designers, like the guy who makes your logo really, there's no reason that that guy shouldn't be able to go make a logo for somebody else. But um, The guy who writes your code maybe maybe should have some restrictions. So it's like you kind of want to pick and choose who you apply it to. And then if you ever get challenged on it, you can you can make a, a better argument that, hey, we only use this when we think it's appropriate. We only use it when the person's really accessing information that they would have a hard time not using if they left. Um It makes it a little bit, it makes it more defensible, I think. And it doesn't restrict a bunch of your employees unnecessarily.
1: So, so, so Cliff, it seems to me from the, from the outsider's point of view that like um, the way, the way you get things done in Olympia is you, you either join a trade association or you found a trade association um, to basically pool resources to advocate for your positions. My, my question for you is like, in this example of the non-competition agreement, um, I mean, it seems to me the coalition there or the trade, if you want to call it a trade association that should be formed, it's just, it's like the association of people who have to work for a living. <laughs>
0: I mean, and that,
1: I mean, you know, honestly, like if you had, if you had a, if you had like a public uh, referendum and only actual human beings could vote, so corporations can't vote, they don't vote in elections, only actual living, breathing human beings could vote, wouldn't wouldn't a prohibition on non-competition agreements just overwhelmingly pass? Because the workers would all vote and say, well, yeah, I want freedom to work.
2: Well, I guess the question you – as I, I um, take in the question you asked me, it's really a division between management and labor. That uh, it, It's the managers of the companies that want the non-competes, and maybe to some degree the workers, labor in this case, uh, as I call it, uh, doesn't want non-competes. Yeah, the
1: funny thing about management is, though, I know a person who um, – you know, I forgot where he went to school. Uh, you know, maybe it was Stanford or something. And, you know, he basically uh, missed out on an opportunity because he was bound by a non-compete um, that would have made him like 20 million bucks um, in the value of the equity that he sort of missed and the job he wasn't able to take because while he was dickering with the company that was going to hire him, for them, they were, he was trying to get them to agree to indemnify him if his current employer, you know, sued for violation of the non-compete. Um, While he was dickering over that, they hired someone else. And the value of the equity that he didn't get, you know, in that company, you know, would have been worth 20 million bucks. There's one individual worker. I call that guy a worker. He's working for a living just like me and everyone else. He lost 20 million dollars because of these laws. It just seems fundamentally unfair.
2: Those are the arguments that are made (laughs) to the legislators all the time.
1: But there is no such quote-unquote trade association as the association of people who work for a living.
2: No, the the uh, non-compete... Issue has come from uh, a number of different areas within the legislature. Uh, Some some members that are in the high tech industry, others who aren't. Uh, There's a lot of um, it's. There is not a trade association uh, that I'm aware of that sort of pushes for the non for the non compete bills.
1: Yeah, and you haven't seen uh, Mike. You know, I don't know if you follow this or not, but in Wyoming they had a. Uh, Wyoming has a – they passed a Bitcoin or a blockchain bill trying to make the state's business climate more hospitable to uh, blockchain companies. Um, and I was I was talking what, – What
0: does that look like? Like what do they what, – what kind of regulation would that be? Like what do they do to make it more hospitable?
1: Well, it's, and I, I have to admit, I've I just listened to some podcasts on the matter. And uh, the woman – there was a woman – I listened to a great podcast, a woman from like the uh, Wyoming blockchain um, – Coalition, I think it was called. Really smart. Um, but anyway, the, the bill is an attempt to make uh, the, the law just more hospitable, like defining a utility token as something that's not a security, for example, I think. Is kind
0: oh, of- yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. So like to just, yeah, just generally like make it make it a more um, comfortable place for people to do business and know what the regulations are. Yeah. If that's. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So there's okay. this thing
1: called the Wyoming Blockchain Coalition. And I, I was asking Cliff if, he, if if he'd heard any like thing going things going on in our in our state capital about blockchain, and and I think the answer is you know not yet, but perhaps you know um, you know we'll have legislators who look at the Wyoming bill and and then you know that becomes an issue of discussion maybe next cycle. I don't I don't know.
2: That's very common. Uh, there has not, to the best of my knowledge, been any th- legislation introduced in Washington on the blockchain issue, or there's not a state coalition that I'm aware of, but there's an entrepreneurial opportunity for someone. Um, It is very common for an idea once it uh, captures some attention and Maybe even passes in another state such as Wyoming for that information to be distributed through a number of the national organizations that legislators are involved in and participate in, including the National Conference of State Legislatures or the Council of State Governments, the American Legislative Exchange Council. Um, They hold regular meetings and annual meetings in the summer, and they have panel presentations on new and developing ideas uh, in other states, and legislators come back from those and Bills get introduced in Washington or in states that may be outside of Wyoming where it started.
1: Yeah. So, um, so in any event, if you're listening to this podcast and you're trying to think about how you want to make changes in the law um, or get something through the legislature, it's possible to do it. I mean, that's doable. We're... You know, it's sort of a miracle that we govern ourselves. I mean, that's a. I, mean, I think it's an achievement of some kind that we manage to govern ourselves.
2: It works year <laughs> in year out and for more than two hundred years. Yeah, yeah. Or the, in this state, the state government's been one hundred and twenty years or more.
1: So over, okay, so there's a question. So let oh, go ahead. Mike,
0: go ahead. I was going to say maybe we could walk through what that looks like, just to give the to give a sense to somebody who's in a company now who's facing some kind of a. Uh, environment that they would like to see some help with from the government. One, one uh, the example I can think of that would be a good one to run through is when when I was so I I do iPhone applications and so I'm a I'm I guess what you'd consider like an independent iPhone developer and so maybe there could be like a trade group for independent iPhone developers or, or maybe just iPhone developers in general. But we sell um, we sell apps on the App Store and Apple distributes those apps on our behalf to customers. But the way Apple's agreement is set up, we are uh, technically they're like a marketplace and people are sort of of buying the app from us directly and they're paying apple i don't know as as like the the payment processing and delivery mechanism um but anyway this comes around to be to saying that that when um when we have to pay washington state O tax there's there was a debate for a little while among among developers who were new at this and the whole thing was kind of new about what 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 tax rate should be paid for that? Whether it's, whether those things are considered uh, retail sales uh, because you're selling them directly to a customer, or whether it's considered some kind of a wholesale or a, or a license. And uh, the state of Washington was pretty specific. I I I, I talked with the folks at the um, the tax office about it, and they they they've got us paying a higher tax rate than some of us think we should be paying. But it's pretty clear that they're right, and we're not going to fight them over it. But if we if we wanted to get together and and get some clarification on this and say why are we paying why are we paying the state tax on all these sales that are happening outside the state it doesn't seem like that's consistent Uh, and we want some clarification in the law if we got together as a group is that well tell me walk me through what that process would look like and whether that's even feasible like for a small group.
2: Yeah. The, so the, the first comment I wanted to make is uh, with respect to the business and occupation tax, which everybody in this state just shortens to B&O tax, uh, the rate for... Of the business and occupation tax, or the BNO tax, varies depending on the segment uh, or sector of the economy you're in. Uh, the services rate is at one and a half percent. Manufacturing, retailing, and wholesaling all have separate uh, rates that are a little under a half a percent. So, if you found yourself, say, in the services rate and you really thought you ought to be in the retailing rate, uh, which would uh, lower that bill by a th- to a third, uh, the first place to start, I would, if you're an individual company owner, uh, is based on where your company's headquartered, I'd go talk to your legislator. The second thing would be to look around this the state and or maybe entities that are outside the state but doing business in the state and therefore subject to the business and occupation tax uh, to see if you couldn't find a group uh, or whether you belong to a group that could take it up as their cause and begin to expand the uh, footprint of people who care about it and are lobbying their legislators to fix it or change it uh, to be more advantageous to the businesses. Um, and uh, that it, it, sometimes i think it's uh it it's absolutely true that uh, there's strength in numbers in Olympia. So if you're just a single business working with your own legislators, it's not as strong as if you have businesses located in 10 or 12 or 15 or 30 legislative districts. There are 49 in the state. Uh, and you all get together and band together, and you're all talking to your own individual legislators.
1: So this bill, like, say we, we, we you know, we drafted a bill to, to address Mike's concern, to change the statutory language this bill would have would have to go through uh, the budget various budget committees i presume
2: the committees that would have jurisdiction over revenue matters correct
1: right and so could you even get a bill like that through in a non-budget year
2: oh yes okay. the, the, you could do it the two committees of uh, would be the finance committee in the house of representatives and the ways and means committee in the senate okay. but you could do that the the legislature makes changes to tax policy both in the, the budget year when they're writing the, the three biennial budgets, which is the odd number year, but also in the even-numbered years.
1: Yeah, for those who aren't aware, our legislature sits for, purportedly, is supposed to only sit for 60 days one year and then 90 days... The
2: no, next 105. Year. <laughs> 105 okay. when they write the budget, which is the first year after an election, so the odd-numbered year. They write the three biennial budgets. That would be the operating budget, the transportation budget, and the capital budget. Okay. And then the following year, which is the election year, they meet for 60 days.
1: Gotcha. Well, so, I mean, this is a libertarian idea that we're going to limit the number of days people will actually – Sit in the legislature and do stuff, right? Or do you describe it as a libertarian idea?
2: Um, I don't know if it's a libertarian. It's. It, it, I guess it goes to that old argument that no person is safe in their <laughs> in their home or their money as long as the legislature's in session. Yeah, exactly. I don't subscribe to someone who makes his living in this in this business to that. But yeah, um, yeah. until nineteen. 19- The early 1980s, we only had sessions in the odd numbered years. They had to be called, well, when I say that, the Constitution only permitted. Uh, a session. I think they were then sixty-day sessions yeah. in the odd-numbered years. Uh, the, the, uh, that was changed by an amendment to the constitution because it had been after about a decade of regular special sessions. I see. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think. I mean. I think there were. I mean. I haven't studied the history of the Washington State Constitution, but it does seem like we did get in some good populist, you know, libertarian ideas into right. that right. document.
2: Right. I was going to say that the, advan- the I guess the the burden of having been bit by the bug when I was 16 is I have a lot of memory of of some of these things going back a number of years. Yeah.
1: Well, I'm sure that, I mean, um, it's, I mean, for me, what's really interesting talking to someone like you who's been there 35 years, is just like, hey, when you look back and then you look forward, kind of, I'm kind of curious what kind of state or condition you think we're in based on, because certainly it seems like um, we go through cycles where we, for whatever reason, lock, you know, you know, we, we we go through cycles where we find we find people who are really good leaders, and they do really you know transformative things. And then it does seem like we go through periods where, for whatever reason, like there's like a lull, and like maybe we don't have really good leaders, or maybe they're all just you know biding their time or something. I, I don't know. It's kind of a weird thing.
2: Well, I I, I don't know. I, I think. Um you know, there are ebbs and flows to the legislative process. There's no doubt about that. They, the legislature makes different kinds of decisions, uh, perhaps, when we are in prosperous times than it makes when we're in leaner times. And we've certainly in the 35 legislative sessions I have been uh, around Olympia, we've seen at least three significant downturns. Right.
1: So, Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Mike, what are your what are your thoughts here?
0: Yeah, I'm just, you know, it's curious. I think a lot of people believe that the, you know, affecting change in the law is outside of their control. And uh, and it may, be, it may be that it's a it's a difficult process. But it's interesting to hear, you know, uh, that, that you know, if you get together a group of people that cares about something, particularly on the state level, that, you know, maybe you can actually make get some traction with it. Um, yeah, it's I, nice, to, nice to see a little bit behind the curtain about how that works and know that it's more accessible than people might think.
2: Mike, I agree with you that uh, people think affecting a change in the law is beyond their... Ca- on them, but that's really not true. I've seen many instances where someone approaches their local legislator and the next thing you know a, a, a good idea is has blossomed and is moving through the process.
1: Yeah. yeah, it reminds me of that great Margaret Mead quote, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has.
2: <laughs>
1: true. Go. That's a go. true statement. There you go, Mike. So you can do it. You could do it. And we, you know, we had, we saw that with I mean we had some success with the state crowdfunding bill I mean right. getting it through the legislature anyway um, and then a bunch of other states passed the similar laws so it was kind of a fun thing to be a part of.
2: Um, That's a good, a good example that crowdfunding bill and the rewrite. Uh, I I was be I was not involved in the original crowdfunding bill but Joe you approached me about the fact it wasn't working and a yeah. year ago we worked with the uh, chair of the House Finance. Uh, financial Institutions and Insurance Committee, actually in the House, it's called the Business and Financial Services Committee, and with the ranking member of that committee, the ranking Republican, uh, put together a bill. Worked with the department, sometimes that was with the Department of Financial Institutions, but you know, with respect to tax law that we were talking about a few. Minutes ago, approaching an agency in advance. The agency can sometimes, in that case, tax law, it'd be the Department of Revenue, or if it was something that uh, might spur economic development in the state, it would be uh, the Department of Commerce, might be an ally. So, working with agencies in the case of the crowdfunding bill, we approached the Department of Financial Institutions. My recollection was they were initially sort of cool to the idea, but you and a number of others who cared about that, both lawyers and people in the industry, were able to persuade them otherwise. And the agency got behind the um, the rewrite update changes in the law uh, a year ago in 2017, and uh, in, in that instance, a bill passed in the first session that it was introduced.
1: Yeah, that was really fun, and you were super. Um, you were super helpful in that process. And obviously, if, if anyone's trying to get anything done in Olympia, uh, call Cliff; and he can tell you how to do it. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, because seriously, it's a. Uh, if you're not familiar with what's going on down there, I mean, it's. Um, I suppose it's just like anything else. It's like raising angel money when you don't know anything about raising angels? Exactly. I think that's true. You need sort of a guide to the process. Um, Well, great. Well, do you have any, anyone have any parting thoughts here before we check off? Um, Mike, do you have any parting last thoughts or questions?
0: No, no, I think I think that quote of yours is the perfect thing to end on. It's a great, great sentiment. And uh, yeah, and thanks, thanks, Cliff, for being on the show. This has been really interesting. Um, appreciate you taking the time. Yeah, and if
1: anyone wants to get a hold of Cliff, you can email him at uh, Webster at CarneyLaw.com, or you could call him uh, at 206-607-4162. And uh, yeah, Cliff, super appreciate you having uh, being on the show with us here today.
0: It's been a distinct pleasure. Thank you. Yeah. Joe and Mike, thanks. Great. Thanks everybody. And uh and thanks everyone else for listening. We'll uh we'll see you all next week.